Okay, turn with me to John chapter 12, please, as we take a break from Romans to think about the Palm Sunday as it is commonly believed, though on Monday morning, Jesus would have rode him to Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. The Bible says in John chapter 12, verse 12, and we'll read all the way down to verse 41. No. To verse 36. John 12, verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that he had come, that he had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said amongst themselves, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most, are, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, and it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also." If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. There are five things that I want us to look at. We've done this study before, but it's fitting that this Sunday morning, as people all around the world think about this story, that we examine it once again. Five things, the presentation of Jesus Christ, the proclamation of the multitudes, the prophecy of the Old Testament, the perplexity of the disciples in the preaching of Jesus Christ. The presentation of Jesus Christ is such that it is worthy for us to look at it without us getting too speculative, but it is apparent in the New Testament that people wanted Jesus Christ foundationally for reasons other than Jesus Christ wanted 
a relationship to be based on with himself. In fact, this is the first time in the New Testament down when Jesus finally speaks after the rendering of this story that took place on Monday morning when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Understand that John chapter 1 through 11, John chapter 1 through 11 takes place in a 30 to 33 year period. 30 to 33 year period. And then from John chapter 12 to the very end of the chapter. I'm forgetting, so let me see it because it's significant. John chapter 19. No, that's not right. John chapter 21. John 1 through 11, 33 years. John 12 through 21, one week It is the greatest examination in all of the Gospels of what we call as Christians, Passion Week. It is the greatest examination. And most of that examination is a study that we did as a church. I I don't know if there's a more significant, maybe. Um, I see darkly because I don't see as God sees. But I don't know if there is a more significant time of growth in our church than us going through the upper room discourse for about a year. We spent about a year in John 13 to 17. Just really a treasure trove of scripture as it takes a microscope and examines one night. 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. In fact, also in 18, as it goes into the morning, but one 24-hour period of this microscopic examination of the words of Jesus Christ and the story of his crucifixion. And it all begins with Monday as Jesus goes in, or Passion Week technically begins on Sunday as he spent his time in Bethany. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He has this meal that we studied on Thursday um, with Martha and Mary and Lazarus and this whole group of his disciples. And now it's time for him to get on a donkey and ride into Jerusalem to be cut off from his people as Daniel chapter 9 says, which we will study today. And it is the first time, going back to what I was saying a few minutes ago, that he mentions, my hour has come. The first time. He says in verse 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And in contrast to that, Jesus Christ mentioned several times that his hour had not yet come. And as we examine the context in which his hour had not come in contrast with his hour coming, we get to understand what we know to be truth corroborated in Matthew chapter 16 is the foundation of the church. That is Jesus Christ, the word of God and the most significant event and that is his glorification often referred to as the crucifixion. They go back and forth through the New Testament. And we examine that in John chapter 2, when in his first miracle, he is at the 
wedding in Cana of Galilee, they run out of wine, and the family of Jesus Christ, his brothers and sisters and his mom, his dad is never mentioned again, his stepdad Joseph, most likely because Joseph died at a younger age when Jesus Christ was already an adult. And his mom, Mary, comes in and she says to the crowds, do whatever he tells you to do. In other words, he can turn water into wine. He can perform a miracle here. And Jesus says, woman, what do I have to do with you? Now, he's not being disrespectful. You've got to understand that the context in which Jesus speaks is the most unique context of anyone that has ever spoken in the history of mankind because Jesus did not have a beginning and an end. His um, life has never started in terms of him being God. He is eternal. He has lived not millions and trillions of years. There's no amount of years that you can put to eternity. And when he speaks, everyone, including his own mother, is significantly younger than he is. In fact, in John chapter 8, when he's having the most lengthy dispute and really just a downright hateful conversation, not hate coming from him, but with the Pharisees and religious leaders, he said, before Abraham was, I am they wanted to take up stones to kill him. He said, Abraham longed to see my day. They said, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham before Abraham was I am, he said. And so Jesus Christ has a different perspective than a 30-year-old or a 33-year-old. Whereas in those who are 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, even 25. And by the way, as generations decline globally through a globalistic satanic attack that has been prophesied in scripture, it seems that it takes a much older age for them to mature. And I'm not trying to be insulting. I, I find myself trying to teach 28-year-olds basic social manners. Stuff that their fathers and mothers should have taught them. But because there's such an absence in the home home of fathers, they grow up very immature, as I did. Should have been a mature 21-year-old, but I wasn't. I was a very immature 21-year-old. And so Jesus Christ is different. So he says to his mom, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come, he says in John chapter 2. My hour's not yet come. Jesus wasn't saying, I don't want to bless these people by providing for them supernaturally wine to continue the festivities. On a side note, this wine is not like the wine of today, just so you know. It is not the strong drink that the pagans would brew up. This is probably anywhere from 1% to 3% alcohol content as you study history. Wine today is a, anywhere from a 15 to 24, 25% alcohol content, significantly higher, significantly higher. 
So they're not out there getting drunk and Jesus, it's almost like cooking with wine, just so you know, which can be very delicious. I don't, not saying go buy bottles of wine, but if you do cook with it and you do buy it, I'm just saying invite me over to your house, please. And so we get this indication that Jesus does not want his ministry to be founded on supernatural miracles of turning water into wine or healing uh, the blind or the sick or the lame or, 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 or raising the dead. His ministry is not founded in those things. That is an outworking of his compassion and love for people. It is not how we connect ourselves in a relationship to the eternal God. Because if it's rooted in that, then it's rooted in something we desire rather than his ministry, the foundation of the church, rooting in something that he did, which makes our relationship with him rooted in his desires. And that is vastly different. Yes, it's a blessing if God wants to heal us. If he wants to give sight to the blind, and he can still do it today. But our relationship is not based in such a foundation. Because the moment it is, and then the moment that it is, that we don't get healed, then we are on shifting sands, and that destroys our walk with the Lord. We build our house, as Matthew 7 says, on the rock who is Christ Jesus, not on sands such as growing or trying to be connected to him based on supernatural healings. This is a big problem, folks. It's a big problem. Many ministries, entire healing crusades, these sorts of things. If the foundation of those ministries is not Jesus Christ, the very person and work of Christ, then it is being built on shifting sands. You know, I've heard as of late some good news that now for the second time, TMT has gone out of business and now they want to turn themselves into just a restaurant. Now, I don't know if that's true or not because I still see them promoting uh, some, some bands to come at night and party. And, and I just thought about that. It's like, we were here long before them, and we will be here long after them. And I can tell you why. Because our ministry is rooted in God's word. It is the foundation of this ministry, and that foundation is Christ himself, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not on a pastor, Not on the charm of its members, but rooted in Jesus Christ. Also in John chapter 7, his jealous, wicked half-brothers come to Jesus Christ. Terrible guys. A couple of them get saved. James becomes the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. The first church in Christendom. And they come to him in John chapter 7. And they say, hey, 
And let me paraphrase a little bit because this is what they're saying. They're, they're essentially saying, hey, if you're a big shot, go make yourself known in Jerusalem. What are you doing here in Galilee, in Nazareth? What are you doing here? All the big shot rabbis go to the city. They go to the temple. They go there to, 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 to make themselves known because that is the epicenter of the connection that humanity has to Yahweh. Go there. And Jesus says something so significant that if you've ever wondered how in the world can people hate the most loving, kind, gentle, patient, compassionate person who's ever lived, Jesus Christ. Have you ever asked yourself that question? How, do, how is it possible that people hate Jesus? Well, he tells us in John 7 the exact answer on why. He says to his, uh, his half-brothers, he says, the world does not hate you, but the world hates me because I testify that their works are evil. You want people to hate you? Confront them. That's why confrontation is so small in the church. Now, we need to do it wisely and kindly and lovingly, but to not do it at all is a violation of the commands of God, and it is a violation of the nature of Jesus Christ. I am continually shocked that people get so mad when I confront them. People that... I, our friends, I have loved for years and years. And you say, hey, did you say this or did you do this? Or are you gossiping? So I heard you say, and they're like, I've said, that's wicked. Those deeds are evil. And, and, and oftentimes they'll be like, yeah, yeah, sorry, you're right. And then I hear about later, it's like, man, they are really angry about this. A wise man heeds rebuke and grows from it. A fool surrounds himself with friends that only tell them what they want to hear. The world doesn't hate you, bros. It hates me because I testify that their deeds are evil. You want people to hate you? Just testify that their deeds are evil. Now, here's the truth. None of us want people to hate us. None of us want people to hate us. It's painful when we find out that people not only do hate us, but just don't like us. It's like, man, they don't like us. They don't like me. How's that possible? But nevertheless, if we allow those desires to be man-pleasers, which we all have, to dictate our actions in confronting evil, then we are not following the nature of Jesus Christ. But also he says to his brothers, my hour has not yet come. And now we find that the presentation of Christ is such that he will now present himself to the whole world in humility focused on the cross and resurrection during Passion Week. This is the foundation of the presentation of Christ. Kings would ride in and they would come in on these donkeys 
on these seeds? Both, by the way. The reason they would come in on a donkey or an ambassador of the king is to make a statement to the nation that I come in peace. When they would come in on a horse, it was a statement to the nation, I come for war. Jesus, in his first coming, comes into Jerusalem following the cultural customary understandings of the day as he rides in on a donkey saying, I'm coming in peace. I did not come to condemn the world, but through me, the world might be saved. John chapter 3. You notice the second time he comes, what he's riding? He's riding a white horse in the book of Revelation. He's coming to the world saying... In my second coming, I am coming for war. And I am coming to destroy the nations of the world for their evil and wickedness and rebellion, lack of recognizing who God is and his authority on earth. So, the presentation of Christ is such that he is getting us to understand what the foundation of the churches and what the foundation of our lives should be. Secondly, you have the proclamation of the multitudes. They are proclaiming Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means deliver us. Now, this is commonly referred to as the triumphal entry, and in many ways it is triumphal, but it is also and should be called the tearful entry. And we know that from Luke chapter 19, which we'll look at in a moment. Because in Luke chapter 19, we learn that as Jesus is coming in and the multitudes are screaming out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, that he begins to weep. He weeps. Why is Jesus weeping in sadness for a multitude of people calling him the deliverer of Israel? Well, it's very simple. These people wanted deliverance from their poverty and oppression of governments over and above a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus isn't sad for himself, like, oh, they don't want me, like we would be as fallen human beings. They don't love me. They don't want me. Some pity party. The reason he's weeping is when the foundation of our relationship with Jesus Christ is not based in his person and his will and his desires, but it's based in our will and our desires, it destroys our lives. Deliver us, O Messiah, from Rome. The taxes are such that we are in total poverty. Can barely buy food from our families. Now, I don't want to minimize in any way the pain of poverty and the pain caused by having a lack of food or ability to pay rent or such things like that. But nevertheless is our relationship with Jesus Christ is not based on what we want him to deliver us from, but rather what he wants us to be delivered from, and he wants us to be delivered from ourselves. Because 
There is no government as oppressive to us as we are to ourselves. There is no government that is a greater enemy to us than our flesh is an enemy to ourselves. That our sin is an enemy to ourselves. And the greater enemy, which is our flesh, our sin, and Satan, and his demons... That's the greatest enemy we have. Jesus knows this. He understands that we need a greater deliverance both now in the nation of Kenya and other nations the same way that the nation Israel needs a greater deliverance than a government that oppresses its people. Our deliverance is a deliverance from our sin and selfishness. So he weeps because anybody who seeks to build a relationship with Jesus Christ based on what they want is built on sand. And when the winds come and the storm comes of life, it will destroy their lives. Our relationship with Jesus Christ should not be a proclamation of what he can do for us, but our worship for him because he is God. He is wonderful. He's glorious. Remember that, guys. In John chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 men, which is, you know, where there's men, there's women, and, and thank God, and children. And so thousands and thousands, anywhere from 10 to 15,000 people, Jesus feeds supernaturally. And these people are like, this is the politician for us. This is the king. I mean, any, do you know that at this point in the world or any point in all of human history, any politician or king that can make food out of nothing is going to get voted in office every single time? In fact, that's what people vote for still today. Oh, kitikidogo, kitokidogo, something. Did I say it right? You can give me a little. You got my vote. And so in John 6, the people are going to take Jesus Christ by force to make him their king. And Jesus disappears. He goes out on the mountain to pray. The disciples get on the boat. They're crossing the Galilee. He Sneaks when the multitudes go up the mountain to find him, he sneaks down and walks on water during the storm. That's when Peter gets out and walks on water. They go to the other side, and the people are like, How? Where is Jesus Christ? He couldn't have gone with them, but maybe I don't know. He turned uh, uh, water into wine and he, he makes food out of nothing, so maybe he got to the other side. So they cross over and they say, How'd you get here, Jesus? Jesus doesn't even answer their questions. Because he knows why they say, he goes, I know why you're looking for me. He says it to him. I know why you're looking for me. Because I turned the loaves and the fishes and fed all of you. But if you're thinking about food to eat, let me tell you something. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part with me. I am not going to be your elected king you don't elect me to be king I'm already the king of the universe 
and you will come in a relationship with me on my terms and not yours. Any relationship that begins with God on human terms is no relationship with all, at all. We will come into a relationship with Jesus Christ in his terms or no terms. And his terms is the foundation of our relationship is my person and my work. And because of my person and my work, you now forfeit your will. So now you obey my will because my will is better for you anyways. So this proclamation of the multitudes is offensive. Thirdly, you have the prophecy of the Old Testament. Zechariah 9.9 prophesied that the king, the Messiah, would come in on a donkey's colt, and the disciples would later realize and recall the Old Testament prophecy after Jesus Christ was glorified. But there is something much more significant than just guessing what donkey or what animal he would ride in to Jerusalem Turn with me to Luke chapter 19, please, in your Bibles. In verse 39, as Jesus comes in, they say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees called to Jesus Christ from the crowd and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Verse 38, guys. Verse 39. Rebuke your disciples. In verse 40, but Jesus answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as Jesus drew near the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave you in one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is significant. Please pay attention. Jesus Christ mentioned something here that we could easily pass by without asking the question that should be asked. What does Jesus Christ mean by the day of his visitation? Is he being ambiguous? Is he just like, listen, you didn't know that today's Monday and I'm going to die on the cross in a few days. And that's it. And that's kind of some ambiguous general information. Absolutely, John. No, God is the most specific, detailed person that's ever existed. In fact, any detail that comes from human beings is an outworking and manifestation of humanity being created in the image of God. You look at DNA, you look at the creation of man's bodies, the most immense detail that has ever happened in the universe is the creation of human beings with its DNA and the strands of it. There's more information than, in, in one single uh, cell of DNA than all of the books in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Millions of pages of, uh, of books. He is being very specific when he talks about the day of their visitation. And he is referring to an Old Testament prophecy. 
in Daniel chapter 9. I'll read it real quickly because we're always short on time in this first service. I, re I really uh, don't want to rob you guys of it this morning. He says, as uh, he, Gabriel now comes to Daniel, he says, now while I was speaking and praying in verse 20 of Daniel 9 and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel. Now, this is Gabriel speaking to Daniel. Oh, Daniel. I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, for consider the matter and understand the vision. Wouldn't that be glorious of Gabriel to show up to us and say, hey, God really likes you. God really loves you. Just so you know, guys, God really loves you too this morning. You're greatly beloved, for consider this matter. The idea is meditate upon this and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. He's saying to seal up vision and prophecy. Know therefore and understand. He's saying you got to meditate upon this to understand it. That from the going forth of this command, so right here from this day, to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall, even the troubled times. And after 62 weeks, that's after the seven weeks and then after 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people and the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end shall be with the flood. And then he shall confirm a covenant with one week. And it goes on talking about the tribulation. He shall be cut off from his people in Jerusalem. Now back to Luke chapter 19 talking about this day. And we don't have time to do an exposition of Daniel 9. But listen to this guys. It says here that there is 69 weeks. Seven from when this command goes forth until boom. There will be the completion of when Nehemiah and Ezra will go in with the permission of Artaxerxes to rebuild the temple and Jerusalem. And then from when that is completed, there'll be 62 weeks. The idea in Jewish numerology is 62 sevens and seven sevens, 70 total sevens. That's 490 years. So from this command, to when the temple is completed, that is, and Jerusalem, and Ezra goes in, and Nehemiah goes in, boom, they're done. He said, count from that day. And from that day, there will be 62 weeks from when the Messiah comes in to Jerusalem to be cut off from his people. That's what Daniel 9 just says. March 14th, 44. 
445 BC, Artaxerxes gave the order from Nehemiah to restore and rebuild Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 2. And then from the time that they finished, 62 sevens, 483 years, 173, 880 days later, the prophecy was that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem to be cut off from his people. 173,880 days later, is April 6, 32 AD, on the Jewish calendar, Jesus, Monday morning, gets on a donkey and rides into Jerusalem. And Jesus Christ in Luke 19 looks at those people, looks at the Pharisees, and says, I told you about this day. I told you about the day of your visitation. Did you not examine Daniel 9 like I told you to do? Do you know that there is enough information in Daniel 9? And when you, by the way, Sir Robert Anderson in his book, The Coming Prince, he combined modern calendars with the day calendars and the Greek calendars, all these things. It is to the very day that Jesus writes in. To the very day. Ladies and gentlemen, and because of such a detailed prophecy, which is an evangelistic tool, by the way, because of such a detailed prophecy, they should have been there and go, Hosanna, he's coming today. Today we're being visited by the Messiah who will destroy sin and set up righteousness for God's people. That is remarkable. The prophecy of the Old Testament. Fourthly, the perplexity of disciples. Ladies and gentlemen, they're confused. They're perplexed. The Bible says they did not understand these prophecies, including Daniel 9, about the Passion Week until Jesus was glorified. Jesus was glorified on the cross. The word glorified means to be lifted up. And it wasn't intellect. It wasn't IQ that caused Jesus to be, glorif or, uh, to be glorified in the eyes of the disciples. It was when Jesus was high and lifted up in the minds and the hearts of the disciples that now they can see prophecy and the will of God clearly. You cannot figure out the will of God for your life through your intellectual abilities. You can only figure out the will of God for your life when God is the number one. You shall have no other gods before you. And when he is the number one in your life, he sits on the throne of your heart. He is boss. He is Lord. He is king. Then the Holy Spirit comes upon us and works in us to direct us according to the will of God. You can see everything around you clearly when he is king, when he is Lord of your life. But you cannot see it clearly if he's not glorified. There, it, it, it could be that there is one person one person in the New Testament that actually believes that Jesus is going to die on the cross, though he said it 
to dozens of people multiple times. One person, and that's found in John 12, the scripture we're in. And it's Mary who breaks the alabaster box, anoints the feet of Jesus Christ. Mary is worshiping him. Mentioned three times in the New Testament. Do you know where she is every time she's mentioned? She's at the feet of Jesus Christ, worshiping, looking up to his mouth as he teaches the word of God. He has been glorified in her life the whole time. She looks up to him as now the disciples will look up to the cross as he's crucified. And she anoints him for his burial. She could be the only one in the New Testament that actually believes the words that aren't complicated to understand. I'm going to the cross to die. Do you get that? It's not complicated. What, if I came up to you and said, I'm going to go to a matatu to die today. I mean, the odds are great that that could happen if I ride in one. But still, that would be significant if I actually did. Now, I'm not comparing myself to Jesus. Jesus is God, and she believes his words. And the reason she understands it clearly, most likely, is because she looks up to him. He has been glorified the whole time. It's not an intellectual ability. Who's smarter than who? Is Jesus glorified in your life? Is he Lord? Then you can understand the will of God. If he's not, you will never understand the will of God for your life. And lastly, the preaching of Jesus Christ. He's preaching the death, burial, and resurrection, not only of himself, unless the seed falls into the ground and dies, it cannot rise again. He's preaching the death and burial resurrection of us. He who hates his life for Christ's sake is the one who's born again. If our salvation does not look like hatred for our own personal plans, you need to reevaluate who is sitting on the throne of your heart. Is it you or God? And as you look at the presentation of Christ, the proclamation of the multitudes, the prophecy of the Old Testament, the perplexity of disciples and the preaching of Jesus Christ, we get this incredible wonderful portion of scripture that we commemorate every single year, the Passion Week of Jesus Christ. Let's have the worship team come forward. Death, burial, and resurrection. Listen, guys. If you're trying to add Jesus Christ, if you're trying to add him so that You can get what you want in life. You can get prosperity. You can get whatever the case may be. You can get a a, a good career. We hope that God does all that for us. There's nothing wrong with getting those. But we don't want to make that the foundation of our relationship with him. He presented himself to us in such a way that it's all of his will or nothing. That's the deal. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the privilege to study your word and to fellowship with one another. I pray also as we receive today's offering that you would grant us wisdom through the administration of these gifts. 
and that this offering would be because we love you. Just because we love you, and that's it. Not a seed, faith. We love you, and we give it to you because you are worthy. And I pray your blessings, Lord, upon the rest of our fellowship and services today. In Jesus' name, amen.